Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there. This is Dee, and welcome to episode 110 of the Benzo Free Podcast. I'm going to keep this intro really short today because I have an amazing conversation with Stanford psychiatrist, Dr. Anna Lemke. It's a full hour long. I couldn't edit it down. There was too much good stuff in it and I had to keep it. And so I need to keep my intro and my closing as short as possible to get it all in. And um, <laughs> I'm just excited about it. As you can tell, I'm, I'm having a good day. I'm feeling good. Um, I hope you all are doing a little better. I, you know, maybe even having a window and having a good day and less symptoms or wherever you are. I just think about you often. So I, want, I hope, hope things are going well. I do have really two quick updates I need to cover. And then we're going to jump into, um, to the conversation with Dr. Lemke. And that's the whole rest of the podcast, but really quickly. One is if you listen to any of the previous two episodes, episode 108 and 109 of the Benzo Free podcast, it was on surgery. It was on my foot surgery that I had, and foot's recovering great, um, so doing well, walking more and more. I'm up to a mile um, or more now, which is awesome, um, four weeks out. But one of the things I told you, though, that I would follow up on was I did take a benzodiazepine during the medical procedure, during surgery, um, midazolam, a short-acting one, and I told you I would update you on how that worked out. I'm here to tell you that I've had no noticeable effects of taking that benzodiazepine during surgery. I have some minor, mild um, bind symptoms right now, but I usually do. So that's that's nothing new. In fact, um, after surgery, I had less symptoms than usual. I'm guessing that probably was due to the anxiety leading up to the procedure and then less anxiety after, so my symptoms really eased. But for myself, I have seen no long-term complications, short-term or long-term complications, from taking the one-off benzodiazepine. Now, this doesn't mean that somebody else might not have a different um, experience. All I can do is share here my experience and to say that um, I match what Ashton and some others have said, that it hopefully it does not complicate um, our recovery too much. So I wanted to give you that update. One other thing really quickly, I want to mention a study that's going on right now that people might be interested in joining. It's called a PROTECT study. It's from Trinity College Dublin, along with the James Lind Alliance. They're looking to identify the top 10 priorities for future research about reducing and stopping psychiatric medications. And all answers are treated confidentially. It's anonymous. So, um, so if you want more information, please go to tapersafer.org. And then you just click on the Protect study on that opening page. I'll put a link to it in our show notes. And really quickly, 
we're almost there. <laughs> Don't forget to please, we'd love to hear from you. Comment on our videos, on our podcast posts via our feedback form at easinganxiety.com slash feedback. Perhaps you might want to subscribe to our mailing list at um, easinganxiety.com slash subscribe or even donate to support the work we do. Every little bit helps. And remember, the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Now let's move on to our feature. Dr. Anna Lemke is a guest that I've been trying to schedule for the past few years to come onto the podcast. Um, we had an interview lined up a while back, but then COVID hit and we both got sidetracked and we had to cancel that and do other things for a while. Finally, we got reconnected and found time on both of our schedules and I couldn't be more pleased. You know, when I started to edit this conversation, I thought, you know, I'd edit it down. We had a little over an hour of content. And I thought, okay, I'll just edit this down to like 50 minutes or 45 minutes because then I'll add the intro and add the closing. And I try to keep my episodes under 60 minutes when I can. That didn't work well, um, <laughs> meaning I couldn't find anything to cut. This is the complete conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. Let me tell you just a little bit about her. Anna Lemke, MD, is Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar, she is the author of more than 100 peer-reviewed publications, has testified before the United States House of Representatives and Senate, has served as an expert witness in federal and state opioid litigation, and is an internationally recognized leader in addiction medicine treatment and education. In 2016, Anna published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, which was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. Dr. Lemke also appeared in the Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. Her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, was an instant New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller and explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine-overloaded world. Please check out our show notes for links to Dr. Lemke's books and other resources. And now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Anna Lemke to the Benzo Free Podcast. All right, we are here at the Benzo Free Podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've, we've been trying to schedule this one for some time, but both of our schedules kind of just didn't mix, and then COVID hit, and we all got sidetracked, and um, finally we were able to get this set up again, so I'm so glad that you took the time to speak with us today. Yeah, thanks for your patience. I'm really glad that we finally found a time. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I think the first thing I always like to start off with our guests is just to um, tell me a bit about yourself. We have the bio and I'll introduce you with the bio um, before this, but can you just tell me a bit about yourself and your experience um, with um, addiction medicine and everything like that? Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist. I'm also a professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine on the faculty here at Stanford University School of Medicine. Um, I have the kind of classic three-legged stool of academic medicine. I teach, I do research, and I see patients. And I see many of my patients together with trainees, that's to say medical students, 
residents, fellows, sometimes visiting faculty. Um, when I re- originally went into psychiatry, I was not particularly interested in treating patients with addiction because I hadn't learned very much about it in medical school or my residency. But um, I quickly discovered that I was actually harming my patients by ignoring these problems. So in the early 2000s, I made a shift and started to focus on the problem of addiction and also chemical dependency more broadly. As it happened, that coincided with the beginning of the opioid epidemic, uh, which was caused by the overprescribing of opioids and benzodiazepines and psychotropics uh, to patients, um, ultimately leading to the crisis that we see today. And so a big part of my job became educating patients and also doctors about the dangers of the medications that they were prescribing. And then along about 2014, 2015, I recognized the great need for de-prescribing clinics. So um, increasingly over the years, we have more and more patients who don't actually meet criteria for addiction, but they do meet criteria for uh, chemical dependency on a prescription drug like a stimulant or an opioid or a benzodiazepine. And we work with them to get off of those medications in safe and uh, healthy ways. When you mentioned de-prescribing clinics, are you referring to more like a a rehab type of clinic or detox or something different than that? Not referring to a rehab. Uh, You know, rehab is kind of colloquial for residential treatment for addiction. No, I'm, I'm talking about people who may not even meet the DSM criteria for an addiction, but who have become physiologically dependent on a medication their doctor is prescribing, everything from opioids to stimulants to benzodiazepines to muscle relaxants. And we help them taper down and off of those medications, um, you know, in, in a safe way. It's funny that, you know, an addiction medicine clinic has essentially become the place where those individuals end up. Uh, but it, it also makes sense in a way because, of course, we deal with withdrawal, right? That's what we do as addiction right. medicine docs. We, we, we do medically monitored detox. We've been doing that for hundreds of years. Um, whereas the rest of medicine that we learns how to get patients on drugs, but not how to get patients off of drugs. So it became a sort of a natural default that we would end up um, doing that kind of care. And so when I use de-prescribing clinic, I'm really just talking about patients who got caught up in the system, who got physically dependent on a, a medication their doctor prescribed and then found they couldn't get off of it on their own. Okay. That makes sense. I think at first, many people in our community have been a little bit... Um, hands off with the addiction community, but now we're starting to realize there's so much we can learn from what we've learned from opioids and other medications that we can carry some of that into benzodiazepines. Yeah. And vice versa. I mean, um, you know, when I, we first started having to think about how to get chronic pain patients down to lower doses of prescription opioids or off them all together, the first thing I looked at was the Ashton manual, right? Yes. Uh, so, so you know, looked at the benzodiazepine deprescribing world for help on how to deprescribe for um, opioid dependent patients. So, I think there is a lot of ways in which we can cross pollinate across these populations. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard it, the reverse side of that. That's interesting because because opioids seem to be so much further ahead as far as awareness and education 
um, goes as far as the benzodiazepines. I know you mentioned about the hidden epidemic and how, um, you know, that is, and we, we've used that same term since you presented that one a while ago. Um, but now we're getting recognized and we're starting to follow some of that lead that I know opioids and other prescription drugs have taken. Right. Yeah, no, it, uh, you know, early in about 2015, when it became clear that we had to help chronic pain patients get off yeah. of opioids, they weren't going to be able to do it on their own. I came up with something called the Bravo protocol, which is just completely uh, stealing what Heather Ashton did for benzodiazepines. Okay. And I, you know, I acknowledge that, you know, kind of her pearls where let patients drive, um, you know, yes. uh, you, can, you can take breaks, but don't go backwards, go, you know, go down in small decrements, don't go too fast, um, things like oh, that. Where, where can you learn more about the, that, I'm interested with the Bravo protocol. Is oh. that something that's been published or is it something... Yeah, it's published. If you look at the Oregon Pain Guidance website, um, on and you just type in Oregon Pain Guidance website and go there, and you you type in Bravo Protocol B R A V O, you will find, um, you know, basically a a kind of prospectus for patient consumers, but also providers, so that they can know how to help patients get off of yeah, that. Yeah, I will look that up, and I'll, I'll link it in our show notes for everybody. Great. And we actually came up with a sort of a tapering flow chart um, as guidance okay. to providers as part of the Bravo protocol. I did that with, with my colleagues in Oregon, with the Oregon Pain Guidance Initiative. And then that flow chart was actually adopted by the HHS and published in their opioid tapering guidelines. So it's, it's nice to see how you know, um, that that made its way. And what I love about the Ashton Manual, I just like to put this out there, you know, it wasn't really a clinical study, right? We put so much time and energy and money into clinical studies. And hers was just sort of a naturalistic observation in collaboration with patients around what worked for them. I wish we could make more of a space in medicine for those types of publications. I don't know that she even ever actually got it published in a peer-reviewed medical journal. I think she just made it available on her website. But, but it's such a powerful document, right? Because it's based on the lived experience of actual patients getting off of benzos and their schedules. And so I just found it to be not just an incredibly useful document clinically, but also a kind of a powerful statement around the kinds of publications we probably need more of in medicine. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. One of the things I also liked with her um, manual was she made you believe you could do it. It yeah. was a um, it was a, a self empowering, but also a positive manual in the end that you know you can do this. People do this. You can get off this. And she told you the truth, but she didn't frighten you to death. Yeah, and I think th- that's a great theme in general, which is worth highlighting the, the sort of contagion effect of both hope and pessimism. And when it, yes. when it comes to benzos, you know, some of the grassroots communities and the chat that happens online has been incredibly hopeful and positive for people. But the dark side is I've had patients who actually get obsessed with checking all the horrible things that can happen to them. And then that's not helpful. So I sometimes have to say, them, you have to stop going online. You have to stop, <laughs> you know, visiting this site. Yeah, we, I work with a lot of people that are exactly what you're talking about, where a lot of them, I think, eventually, originally go to online and find the information that they need, which is great. And that's where it's wonderful, especially if it's at some of the more, more respected sites that have good information about benzodiazepines. But af, af, over time, so many of them, including myself, the horror stories start to um, 
right. to get to us. And and like you've mentioned in some of your work that I read earlier about that that dopamine cycle that you know like with news and everything else where you you wind up getting into this cycle whether it's bad news or good things you you start to crave it. And I, I notice that with myself at time that people keep looking for that. Right, right. That's people, why people can get addicted to the news or you have adrenaline yes. junkies or you have rageaholics. Dopamine is really interesting because we think about it as the reward, pleasure, and motivation neurotransmitter, which it is, but it's mm-hmm. also very sensitive to novelty. So anything that's new in our environment will trigger the release of dopamine. So when we like search online for the latest, newest tidbit of information, it doesn't really matter if it's good or bad information or if it makes us feel happy or sad. It's new and the newness will release dopamine and then we can get into that that addiction yeah. cycle through that process. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was watching one of your videos on YouTube. I think um, Medicating Normal had posted this one up there and I think it was called Benzodiazepines Dependence and Withdrawal. And you had mentioned that all addictive substances have a huge release of dopamine and benzodiazepines can develop what you mentioned was a dopamine deficient state. I was wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that and what happens with benzodiazepines relating to dopamine within the human body? Sure. So to me, one of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the last 50 to 75 years is that pleasure and pain of all different types, physical and emotional, are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And they work like opposite sides of a balance. When we feel pleasure, the balance tips one way. When we feel pain, it tips the other And there are certain rules governing this balance, and the most important one is that the balance wants to stay level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And the way that the balance does that is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So if we take Xanax, for example, Xanax binds to the GABA receptor. It's a calming chemical, but it's also addictive. So it releases dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, in this specific reward circuit, and our balance tilts to the side of pleasure. No sooner has that happened than our brain is going to react by adapting to the presence of the Xanax by downregulating GABA production and transmission, by downregulating dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels before coming back up to baseline. So this is the key, that neuroadaptation occurs by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever to the opposite of whatever the initial stimulus was. I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain (laughs) side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance. So they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's withdrawal, that's craving. And if we have access to our drug of choice, the urge to take more in order to quickly restore the balance is very, very strong. But if we don't, we wait. If we don't take it and we wait, those gremlins hop off and eventually, you know, the balance is restored. But what happens, whether it's addiction or chemical dependency, is that as we continue to ingest our drug of choice, we accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance. And then that initial response to pleasure or, let's say, that anxiolytic effect gets weaker and shorter, but that after response, that come down gets stronger and longer. And ultimately, we end up in this dopamine deficit, GABA deficit state. And now we need more of our drug in mm-hmm. you know, larger quantities and more potent forms to get the same effect. But the key is that when we're not using, we're walking around in this deficit state where we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. That makes sense. 
for many of us with lived experience and people who are some of the organizers are always careful about the term addiction and trying to emphasize more physical dependence with benzodiazepines because most of the people we're working with are not so much dealing with abuse, but more as prescribed use over a long period of time. Is that something you've also seen? And is that terminology a factor? And do you use different terminology when you deal with somebody coming off of benzodiazepines? Mm. So language is really important, right? And this making this distinction between addiction and dependence is something that the DSM-5 does, right? That we used to call addiction dependence, right? They were virtually synonymous. We no longer do that. When we use the word dependence now, we're talking about the pure physiologic phenomenon and not the complex biopsychosocial disease of addiction. And this is new, that we've separated Mm -hmm. these two out. For, for, For most of the last century, people who were just physically dependent were also considered to be addicted. Now we don't, we don't, we, now we make a, a fine distinction and I make this distinction in my clinical work. And I think it's important to make the distinction because of the different pathways that people come to be on these medications and find themselves dependent on these medications. You know, patients who have basically gotten them from a doctor only ever took them as prescribed and then find themselves physically dependent. I think it's important to acknowledge the iatrogenic or doctor-caused nature of that phenomenon. Right. And I do that by using this language of physiologic dependence and explaining to patients the difference between dependence and addiction. Of course, dependence is part of addiction, right? It is right. It is part, that neuroadaptation is part of addiction, but you can also be addicted without being dependent. And so we're, and you can be dependent now without being addicted. So I do think making the distinction is, is important, even if it's only sort of a, an acknowledgement of the, the pathway to which somebody came to be uh, on a particular drug and found difficulty getting off of it. It seems to be mostly unique with benzodiazepines. And I was kind of curious on your take on this, but is the um, duration of the of the protracted withdrawal for, for many people where it can last months and years for some people that doesn't seem to be the case with too many other medications is, is that what you've seen and any any thoughts as to why it seems that benzodiazepines for some people a subset of people it might take so much longer for that healing and that you know that reaching that homostasis again takes so long I think there's still so much that we don't understand about what benzodiazepines, especially used long-term, do to the brain. I think, you know, we need more research on figuring out whether or not these kind of long-term sequelae that people describe are because the benzos have caused some permanent neurological damage or whether it's it's some other phenomenon going on. Um, but I'm, I'm not convinced that you know, when at least outside of the acute withdrawal period. So we know that the long-acting benzos like clonopin and Valium, mm-hmm. you know, that you can have seizures up to a month after stopping right. your last dose, right? So the acute withdrawal is is very pernicious. But what you're getting at is really these like the, the many months and even years the after stopping, state, yes. right? Right, the protracted. Exactly. Sometimes referred to as the protracted abstinence syndrome or the protracted withdrawal yeah. syndrome. But, you know, honestly, I see that with alcohol. I see that with prescription opioids. I can okay. see that with prescription Adderall. Um, I just think that the benzodiazepine community is sort of more vocal and more aligned and doing a lot more crowdsourcing around this. They've actually built a community around it. But I'm not sure that it's 
um, necessarily somehow unique from other highly reinforcing habit forming dependence forming addictive drugs. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, um, in some of the, I'm on a, res- a couple of research teams and one of the ones that we're working on that had some papers published, we did, we did find that um, parallel with alcohol. That is one of the things that we started to see and we're starting to write about a little bit because there is definitely, you know, with the GABA receptors and everything else, some similarities with alcohol. I haven't seen it with the other prescription drugs, but that is one thing where we did kind of see that pattern and especially the long-term consequences. Um, it does seem to mirror to some degree alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would make sense because benzos are sort of alcohol in pill form. So I, yeah. I would expect homology there. But I can tell you with patients on long-term prescription opioids, I mean, some some people, they they even with all of the support in the world, they ultimately can't get off of them. You know, okay. and need to be maintained on a long, sort of a yeah. chronic low dose, suggesting some kind of permanent and irreversible brain change in that context as well. When when did you first become concerned about the benzodiazepines specifically in your practice? Early in my career, I prescribed benzodiazepines without really thinking about mm-hmm. my patients getting addicted or long-term neurologic sequelae. I, I really had no knowledge of that. I distinctly remember a Stanford swimmer coming in and complaining of insomnia. And on week on a visit two or three, I said, well, why don't we try some clonopin? So I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person. Um, I think for me, it was really the opioid epidemic and seeing many, many patients on long-term opioids being harmed by those opioids, many of whom were also on long-term benzodiazepines. And then, you know, getting the data about the synergy between benzos and opioids in terms of increasing overdose risk. I think it was all part of that trajectory beginning in the late 1990s. Um, you know, my growing awareness of the number of patients that were getting addicted to the very same pills their doctors were prescribing, that it wasn't just opioids. You know, it was also benzodiazepines, stimulants, muscle relaxants. I didn't set out to be like the deprescribing queen of uh, <laughs> of the medical field, but I've yeah. just become so both alarmed and convinced that um, that we're over-prescribing and harming patients as a result that if effectively much of my professional time and effort in the past 20 years has gone toward uh, trying to educate doctors about the true risks and benefits and helping people get off of prescription drugs that are harming them. What, what do you what do you see in um, and I know this this fits also prescri- other prescription drugs but of course our focus here is mostly benzos but what are you seeing within colleagues I know the message seems to be getting out that you know as the FDA and other literature have stated you know recently in 2020 on their statement that, that short term use is um, long term use is not recommended that's been the message coming out for a while in the literature but it still seems very prevalent especially with general practitioners let alone also maybe some psychiatrists that they're still being prescribed long-term. Are you seeing that within colleagues, within the, within the medical professionals you work with? Uh, well, first of all, the, the data show that benzodiazepine prescribing nationally has decreased starting since okay. about 20, 2012 or 2015. So that's the good news. Yeah. Um, you know, opioid, opioid prescribing has also decreased. Um, opioids actually increased fourfold between 1999 and 2012 and have de- decreased almost that much again up to the present day since 2012, the peak. And benzos really mirrored that in terms of prescribing. 
um, both increasing, I think, approximately twofold between the 1990s and 2012, and then slowly decreasing since then. So we know that we are prescribing fewer benzodiazepines, but we're probably still not where we need to be. I'm seeing a huge generational shift. So people like me, doctors trained in the 1990s and early aughts, tend to uh, still be prescribing uh, benzodiazepines outside of the evidence, which is to say in the absence of evidence for longer than they should. But this younger generation of medical students, nurse practitioners, and other prescribers coming out now, they are, tend to be much more wary of getting patients started and also continuing benzos and opioids and, and other potentially addictive drugs, with the exception of Adderall, which continues to go up, and that's very concerning. Right. I did see there was, was it, there was a spike, though, on some benzodiazepines at the beginning of COVID, it looked like, for about that is true. That a 12-month period, but then it started to come back down again. Right. And it wasn't clear whether people were actually, more people were being prescribed benzos or being prescribed at higher doses, or if people were at hoarding. So I think initially what happened is there was a sort of a hoarding phenomenon, a sort That's of a rush, rush on benzos. But the actual amount, um, you know, of people on them and the doses, I, I don't think that that has um, appreciably increased. Or if it has, it's come coming back down again. Yeah. Do you know if we've seen in the data that it mirrors like the increase in anxiety? Does it seem to still kind of follow the same pattern, or does it seem to be separate now? Well, I think what we're seeing in mental health trends more broadly is that we are getting and this has been true for the past 30 to 50 years, all over the world, we're seeing um, higher or growing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. And the richest countries, and paradoxically, the countries with the most access to prescription psychotropics to help those problems um, have actually the highest rates and the highest rates of growth of those problems. So clearly, we have some kind of serious mismatch here where Despite the increased prescribing, we don't seem to be curbing the rates of anxiety. People who understand how benzos work know that benzos taken long-term can actually make anxiety worse. So we may indeed possibly even have a, a causal uh, you know, reason for more anxiety. But I, I think even separate from the prescribing trends, we just have more unhappy people in the world. You know, what I think has happened to the world is that we've essentially drugified almost all human behaviors from, mm-hmm. uh, from human connection through, through the distillation of certain forms of social media to sex with online pornography, shopping, gaming, all these things that we, we used to do in a kind of a moderate and healthy manner. We now have the ability to do in this very rapid, condensed, potent, and reinforcing way. I mean, it's almost the dark side of capitalism. You know, we, mm-hmm. we I, I consume and therefore I am. And this is sort of the inevitable product. Yeah. Addiction is in some ways the inevitable product of capitalism. So in, when, I th- when I think about that, you know, in, in reference to people struggling to get off of prescription benzodiazepines, I worry a lot about cross-addiction um, or cross-dependence, you know, to use the, the, yeah. the language. And, uh, you know, the danger of sort of switching to another drug as we attempt to get off of our first drug. And what I always let people know is that these digital devices, they are drugs. They're both a portal to traditional drugs and they're drugs in and of themselves. The screens are reinforcing, the pressing of the buttons probably calls up some kind of 
you know, primordial instinct to use our hands, um, like grinding weed or picking berries. Um, these um, online digital platforms have been engineered to be addictive, right? They're in sh- the content right. is with bright colors, music, confetti. Um, you know, there are the, the likes. Whenever we give something a number or enumerate it, that triggers dopamine release um, for reasons that we don't, you know, fully understand. The bottomless bowls, right? The the alerts, the triggers. When we get reminded of something online, it actually releases dopamine. Um, you know, just the reminder itself, even without it, releases dopamine, followed by a dopamine deficit state, followed by the the craving that comes with that deficit state, which then. Yeah, so even just drive. the expectation, right? I mean, That's sometimes right. When- when I know I'm going to get my phone and look up something, you're already feeling it, right? You're already feeling a little bit high, right? And then yeah. you're consuming the drug, you know, looking at the, whatever the meme or the TikTok or a response to something you posted on Facebook. But at the same time that you're feeling that high, those gremlins are working overtime, tipping your balance to the side of pain. And now you have this simultaneous experience of withdrawal. And now then there's the urge to watch another episode, right? Or, exactly. or see another video because you're in a dopamine deficit state and that is driving you because one of the most powerful physiologic drives for all human or all living organisms in the universe is to restore homeostasis. We want to get back to that balanced right. position and we will do almost anything to make sure that happens. One of my favorite examples nowadays is when you're watching a show on Netflix you don't even have to press a button to see the next episode. That little thing comes up and it says next episode. You actually have to do work to stop getting to stop the next it. episode, yes. right? Yes. Which is just such a great example of the world that we live in today, this kind of reward-saturated, you know, dopamine-overloaded yeah. world. We're, we're inundated. We are. I noticed that in, in myself. I was um, I actually abstained from almost entirely all news for several years during my acute withdrawal. I was in, you know, pretty rough state coming out of the benzodiazepines. And it wasn't until maybe a year or two ago that I started to, you know, get back into social media a little bit and watch some news. And what was interesting about that was I was coming it from it from a totally brand new objective perspective. And as I started to watch some YouTube, I started to see those patterns in myself. And I started to see that craving. And I started to see that I was glued to certain videos, but not to the other ones, not the ones that relax me. Those aren't the ones I wanted to go check out because I have all these nice nature, you know, shows and meditation. Sure, and stuff. yeah. The ones I want to go do are the ones that have the big titles in red and white, you right. know, about some political mm-hmm. thing or about some news thing or about some disaster. I mean, when when um, the hur- hurricane hit Florida, you know, oh, yeah. I just wanted to keep looking and watching watching videos on it. And I, oh, for and even sure. My wife said, you know, you need to back away. And I said, you know, you're right. <laughs> and so oh, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many tsunami videos I've watched in my time oh, you know, really? all over the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. oh, my God, the flood. It's gone. I could watch those for days, for days. What, what does that do to what is it about that, especially like a negative thing like that? Why is that something that's addictive? So again, dopamine is is our pleasure and reward neurotransmitter, but severe pain actually works just like a drug. So if you okay. take an animal, like a, a rat in a cage, and you, you expose it to a very painful foot shock, and then you slice open its brain, what you will see is an arborization or an increase in dopamine-releasing neurons in the reward pathway, equivalent to what you would see with a single injection of cocaine. In other words, when we turn the volume up on painful experiences, it becomes a drug. 
and it releases okay. dopamine in the reward pathway because dopamine is at the end of the day, a neurotransmitter that's telling us, pay attention to your environment, pay attention. Um, and in order to get us to do that, it also makes us feel good, right? I mean, how are you from an evolutionary perspective going to get the organism to pay attention? You're going to say, hey, if you pay attention to this, uh, I'm going to reward you with this feel-good neurotransmitter. And you need to pay attention to this in order to survive because, of course, we evolved in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. If we weren't looking out for the lion, we were going to get eaten by the lion. So yes. that's the problem yes. that now we've exposed ourselves to so much, so many of these dopamine hits that we've essentially reset our balance. And now we're extremely sensitive to all forms of pain and we need more and more pleasure to feel any joy at all. And this is what I mean by this dopamine deficit state. We've now got gremlins camped out on that pain side of the balance. And that's what I think has happened individually and collectively over the past 150 years or so is that we are, we've actually physiologically changed our brains such that we are miserable and we're miserable because of this relentless pursuit uh, of pleasure or drugs in all their varied forms. I think with all this stuff going on to see that in myself and I've been, I've been taking that curiosity approach, like, okay, I'm sensing this and I'm seeing it. And it's nice because I can stop myself and I'm, I have enough background to kind of know what's happening and see it, but it's still so tempting. And I can, I can see that, that addictive kind of quality. Oh yeah. We, we, we all get caught up in it. What, what's very good is that you are able, maybe partially because of your experience with benzos, to observe it as similar. And it sounds like you have a very good spouse who's calling you out, which is really important. And you know, that having does somebody help, yeah. to Yeah. Having somebody to reflect back to us and say, hey, you know, you've been doing a lot of X. I mean, just yeah. about a month ago, my teenage daughter came up to me and said, mom, you've been watching a lot of YouTube videos. And my immediate reaction was defensive and negative. No, I'm not. Right. Yes. But after yes. she said it, I couldn't unsee it. And then I kind of started to count. Yeah, okay, a, few, well, how... a few hours later, you realize right, right. she was right. <laughs> she was right. Or even I just started to say, well, how, how long have I been on YouTube today? Oh, it's been about half an hour. And how long was I on yesterday? Oh, it was about an hour. And the day before it was two hours. And all of a sudden, yeah. you know, you add it up and you go, oh, wow, this is a lot longer than I thought, which is a key piece of the problem here that when we're chasing dopamine, we lose track of time. We are not good at really both seeing how much time and energy we put into using the drug or its consequences, which is why what you did is so key. You take a break from that drug, which you did with the news, and you recalibrate those reward pathways so that you can more, you know, with a clearer eye, see, see what you're doing. Yeah. And you're right both on both accounts there. My wife was a huge part, but also the benzodiazepines taught me a lot. And that's one thing I focus on a, a lot with the people I work with through the podcast is, you know, we, this is a hard, it's a hard event to go through. It's a difficult event, but for those who suffer from like the protracted and the more difficult withdrawals, it's also an opportunity. We can try to make the best of it. One of the things Benzo's taught me was to, is gratitude and also paying attention to the little things and taking pleasure in the little mm. things of every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and my favorite things now are my, I mean, right now I, I just had foot surgery, so I can't walk with my wife and we usually walk twice a day. Um, and so for a few weeks I'm off my foot. Um, but I realized how much I missed that. That was that little thing. Those two mm -hmm. walks a, a day mm -hmm. with my wife are, have become huge to me mm -hmm. and they didn't before benzos, they weren't. But after I learned some new techniques and learned what's important, I now take pleasure in so many smaller things in life. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think a real key too is also coming to be able to rest in our own minds and take pleasure in our own being and presence, right? And not feel like we have to constantly be distracting ourselves. I'm still working on that one, but it's a great goal. Yes. Yeah. Through meditation, yoga, everything else, I've worked on it and I, I got away from it again and I'm getting back to it now. But that is a good point because I'm also ADHD and I have, you know, different things going on, but coming out of, with the chronic anxiety and I still eight years out, still have protracted symptoms that kick in. The acacia is still one of those things that's there. And so is the, of course, the wandering thoughts and the looping thoughts, but it's just noticing that and seeing it sometimes helps. When I meditate, a lot of people will say, well, I, I can't meditate because I can't turn my brain off. And I say back to them, do you think I really turned my brain off? <laughs> like, I never once in my life have turned my brain off, but right. I can take those hundred thoughts and sometimes bring it down to 20 or, right. or, or mm-hmm. 10. And that's mm-hmm. progress. And I feel better after I meditated. That's the main thing. Right. I just right. feel better. And that's a mm-hmm. good reason to do it in my mind. So, Right. Exactly. I mean, I think, again, getting to this idea of expectations, I think, you know, I yeah. remember when I was in college and um, th- there was this Ram Das mantra, be here now. And mm-hmm. I kept trying to be here now. And I was like, <laughs> I must not be doing it right because I don't want to be here now with myself. Like, I, this is this is right. not good. It took me a really long time, not until midlife, really, where I realized, oh, yeah, be here now means being here now, even with these uncomfortable thoughts and emotions, the looping ruminations, the ridiculous anxiety yes. over things I have no control over, on and on and on. Um, you know, but it's it's like okay, yeah, th- this is what it means to be human. You know, you this is what we we are, yeah. and so and then once you stop trying to run from that and you kind of turn and face it and accept it, magically it gets better. And I think that's it really does. the lesson. I, lo- I love that. I love that. It's it's relevant to me too. Lately, I just lost both my parents in the last year. And, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and taking care of them for a couple, thank you, for um, a couple of years leading up to it, it was, it was overwhelming. And doing all that coming off of benzos, you know, didn't help. So, um, but what was so interesting through that was that whole thing of, you know, I tried the mindfulness and I tried the meditation. I was trying to turn things off, but eventually it was accepting and letting, just letting be what is going to be. Like, hey, right. I'm going to feel sad right now because my dad died last week. Okay, mm-hmm. that's okay. Right. I don't have yeah. to run from that. I don't have to block it. I can just let right. that happen. Right, and I think that's really the key message here because, of course, what happens with benzodiazepines mm-hmm. to people show up to their doctor's office, they're anxious, they're ruminating, mm-hmm. they're uncomfortable. They get a pill that is like a miracle drug, you know, a mirror, it takes it away. It and it's like, oh, yeah. oh yeah. It's like, oh, this is great. You know, this is, this is what I need. Clearly I have whatever disorder this pill was meant to fix until it doesn't fix it exactly. and have other exactly. problems. But, but I think, you know, even just that initial notion like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling these feelings. There must be something that could take it away. It's so ingrained in us. Just, it's, it's probably just part of being human to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain. And yet what we must learn is that pain is part of the human condition and that we can't really run away from it. You know, and there are all these things that we do all day to try to take it away, but at some point we just have to accept it. And and it seems like when we accept it, it's not 
it's usually not as bad as you think it's going to. I mean, it's, well, that's the great mystery and paradox. Yeah. Once we stop running and we go, okay, I'm miserable. It's like suddenly I'm not quite as miserable. <laughs> uh huh. Exactly. I love that. That's great. One one of the things um, I'm getting back to the to the benzodiazepines and recovery a little bit here. You had mentioned Ashton Manual. It's something we always talk about. Um, I also refer people to some of the more um, evidence-based sites like Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices and Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, which I work with both of those groups on several different groups and committees. Um, and there's some good information out there about this. And um, But a lot of them, I get a question, I get a lot of questions, especially about taper and things like that. Of course, I can't say anything because I can't dispense medical advice. Um, but <laughs> when we talk about a taper, what can you tell me, maybe share with you what you share with your patients when when they either come to you and say they would like to come off the benzodiazepines or you find out that they're on benzodiazepines and you make suggestions. How does that work? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing that I try to provide is a kind of a validation of their experience of dependence. Many people who okay. come here have already tried to get off on their own and have been unable right. to do it, or maybe have tried with another provider and have been unable to do it. And the biggest mistake that providers tend to make is they go too fast, especially up front initially. So let's say the patient is like on, I don't know, four milligrams of clonopin a day. Mm -hmm. You know, I say, um, we're, let's, we're going to try to get, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to go down by a tiny little bit to start. It might be like 0.1 milligram if they have access to a compounding pharmacy or something like that. Where they'll say to me, well, I can, I think I can do more than that. You know, I can do, go down by 0.5. And, you know, sometimes I will take their lead. But for that very first decrement, I go down by the tiniest amount possible. Why? Because I want them to have the experience of being able to do it. Because so often uh, they've tried it and they haven't had success. Okay. So when I'm teaching other, you know, other prescribers or my medicals and others, I said, you know what, that first decrement, that first lowering, go down by the tiniest little bit just so they can have a positive loop and see that it's possible. That's the first thing. The okay. second thing is I always warn them they're going to feel worse before they feel better. This is absolutely key. And my patients have told me that this was the most important thing that I could have told them. I, I say to them, you will feel anxious. You will not be able to sleep. You will have intrusive thoughts. You will, you know, tremble, hopefully not too much because we're going by, mm -hmm. down by a tiny little bit, um, but it will get better. And tincture of time, T-I-M-E alone will get you there so that when they come back in a month, they're able to say, oh, what she told me was the truth. It was hard at first, but then it did get better by weeks three and four. And now I feel okay. And then we've, you know, done something amazing, which is we've, you know, they can trust me. They've had the experience of being yeah. able to do it, and then they have more fortitude and courage going forward to proceed with the process. As far as switching from shorter-acting benzos mm -hmm. to longer ones, when I first started out, I did do that. I would switch to clonopin or to Valium or to Librium, you know, per the Ashton yeah. manual. I no longer do that. Okay. Now I just use whatever benzo they're on. And we taper using that benzo, using the same dosing schedule as long as possible. So if it's twice a day, we keep twice a day as long as possible. It's three times. We keep three times. Why? Because our brains are like little alarm clocks when it comes to these drugs. We're used to seeing it when we're used to seeing it. And so keeping the timing is more important than keeping the amount. Um, 
why do I not switch from Xanax to Valium or Clonopin when I have somebody who comes in with Xanax? Because in my experience, just trying to get that transition is incredibly disruptive. I either overestimate or underestimate the amount of Valium or Clonopin that they need, or it just doesn't work on them and they don't feel the same. And it's just incredibly destabilizing, much more destabilizing than if I would just say, you know what? Let's go down by 0.1 milligram of Xanax this month and see how you do. So that's kind of what, that's my sort of, how I've kind of modulated the Ashton Manual recommendations over time. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I did a direct taper. One of the things with um, with the clonopin I was on, though, was, that, you know, the smallest dosage is 0.5, which is, what, about 10 milligrams of volume. It's still a high dose. How do you... Do you, do you do a gram scale? Do you liquid? How do you get a lower dose of that? How do you taper them down? So initially what I would do is tell them to dissolve it in a cup of water and okay. then stir it and then drink the lesser amount slowly over time. So this minus one tablespoon, this minus two tablespoons, something like that. That's obviously not very exact. With the advent of all of the benzodiazepine grassroots groups and online mm-hmm. communities, of course, people have shared amongst themselves how to use a, you know a scale how to cut this down so now i just say go go talk to other people <laughs> um and they they have a lot more information yeah. than i than i have but what I, my favorite method um and the, the the what's prohibitive here is the cost but my favorite method honestly is compounding pharmacies because with the right. compounding pharmacies we can get it exactly right and the patient doesn't have to deal with it or spend a lot of time like, you know, with their drug, which also has a little bit of a, like a feeling of a little bit like drug using to me, you know? Um, I don't know if that feels that way to, to, to patients, maybe not, but I'd just rather have the pharmacy compound it and not have them not have to worry about it. Because especially in the state that many of us are in and that initials, you know, when we start to taper, it's not good probably for us to try to figure out those measurements. I know some people I I work with, I mean, they can barely focus enough to listen to my podcast, let alone yeah. figure out a, a scale and do a micro exactly. or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. And then it's easy. It's easy to borrow from tomorrow to pay for today. You know, it, it, once right. you're sort of managing all that, it gets complicated. And you said that you found timing is important. Yeah. So I don't know if you have found that in your work, but from very early on, I found that it was good to keep the dosing schedule for as long as possible. So if a patient is a a three times a day, that's how they've dosed it. Then I try to keep the three times a day. At some point you get low enough, you have to eliminate one of those. I say to the patient, you know, do you want to eliminate your middle, your morning, your middle, your evening, let them choose. It's interesting too, what people choose. Like sometimes I think, well, probably they're going to want to um, you know, leave the evening dose to help them sleep and and not take it in the morning. But many times patients rely on that morning do- dose more than any other dose as they wake up from a long period of sleep. So that's been interesting for me to see that. Do you encourage them to have some flexibility as if a wave kicks in, they can pause? Or do you t- have them try to stay on a schedule? Right. So, so I mean, one, as you know, the important message, once we agree on the dose, there's no going backwards, right? You can't like take a PRN in the middle of the day if you have a bad no, day. No, I don't mean going up. I just yeah. mean like like take a take a break if the if your your symptoms are kicking in are too severe. I'm really big on that. I, I really okay. want patients to feel like they can pause it. You know, I mean, I have patients who are like on year now probably year six or seven of their benzo taper. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think that's okay. You know, as long sure. as we're headed in the right direction, these are often patients with complex 
both physical and mental comorbidities or co-occurring disorders. They have a lot going on. You know, they might be in the hospital for their, you know, esophageal issues or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they have to go uh, deal with a very complex family situation. Um, I'm fine with, you know, pausing as long as we're headed in the right direction. I like that. Yeah, I I agree with you. And it's one of those things where it does seem allowing some flexibility for the patient that gives them a little bit of control over where they're at and, you know, taking care of things. Um, Yeah, I, I did 18 month taper to come off directly. That's pretty fast. It was pretty fast off of two milligrams. Um, but then, um, the best thing that my doctor who I was, my GP, who I went back to, to help me, he's asked to actually made me stabilize six months before I started tapering mentally. And, um, yeah. And I, I hated it at the time, totally hated it. And I now realize it was incredibly smart of him to do that for me. Because I had just read the horror stories. I had just learned about where I am. I went back to my original prescribing doctor and he refused to taper me off because he said there's no problem with the medication. And so I went to a different doctor and he said, you know, I, I'll, I'll work with you. Um, he said, I, I, I don't believe necessarily you have to come off them, but you want to and I'll work with you. But I want you to wait six months before you start. And um, it was great because I, I started meditation. I started yoga. Great. I started exercising. Mm-hmm. I started, yeah. you know, t- doing everything I could to get my mindset. And I got more stable. And I don't know if I would have been as successful if I had started right away. You know what? That is a great clinical pearl. And I'm going to take that with me. That okay, is good. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to. So I think that's a really, that also helps build the therapeutic alliance and the trust, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really, really good idea. Um, and I, I often teach that, you know, you may inherit a patient who's on this crazy drug regimen, medication regimen that right. you want to taper them, but never, ever, you know, do that on the first visit. You got to build up the therapeutic alliance. But it had, had never, I don't think I've ever thought of like actually taking six months to do that and to use that also to encourage the patient to strengthen their other coping strategies. That's a great idea. I always recommend other coping strategies, right. but I do it sort of simultaneously with starting okay. the taper. So it's an interesting idea. I will try that out. Oh, interesting. Thanks. Yeah. I, I work primarily with coping strategies because as a layperson, that's all I can really work with them on, right. you know, is anxiety management, fear management, um, helping them understand it, just being listened to. I probably, the number oh, yeah. one thing our podcast does is just, um, acknowledge, you know, that this is real, this happened to you, there's others like you, and we're going to get through this. Yeah. I had a pa- I had a patient who said to me, you should go on his podcast. I listen to oh, it really? all the time. Yeah. She oh, was wow. like, it's really helpful. <laughs> and I said, what to her, well, what's helpful about it? She said, it's just reassuring. Oh, that's good to hear. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. This is, yeah. What, what do you say? One of the things that I know we run into a lot and probably the number one question I get is how do I find a doctor? Now, um, I know, you know, because so many of them have had bad experiences, either with a GP, usually with a GP, because they Mm -hmm. just don't have the extra training. They've had some difficulty. Either they said they don't listen to them, they don't take their their symptoms seriously, or they they believe you should stay on them. People talk about benzo-wise physicians, and I understand that too, but I sometimes lean more towards finding a doctor who you can trust and somebody who will work with you and believe you. That's it. Yeah, because we get calls all the time, you know, and I always say to people, we don't have any secret sauce here. 
Like we're not doing anything different. And also we see all of our patients together with trainees and that can be very disruptive for people. You know, you have to, you will be seen by a medical student and a fellow and, you know, I might come in for five minutes. So, um, you know, I, I'm basically letting people know pros and cons and we don't have anything like special that we do here. We just basically provide the support um, as, as we taper slowly. So I think that you're absolutely right and especially when I talk to people out of state that, you know, we couldn't see anyway because they're not in California, I say to them, you know, one of the best things you can do is print out the Ashton manual and take it in hand and go find yourself a good doctor who's willing to listen to you, willing to prescribe, but and willing to work with you around the taper and educate them. Yeah. You know, you can be there. You, you can also be doing a huge public service by that, by doing that, because, you know, if your doctor and you have a successful taper together then, you know, the next time this problem arises in the doctor's clinic, they'll know what to do and you will mm -hmm. have taught them. Not that it, you know, should be the patient's responsibility. No, but that is so true. But that's what it is. No, I love that. In fact, that's, I've said that many times on the podcast that I have three medical professionals that have changed their prescribing practices because right. the patient. Exactly. We exactly. make a huge difference. The patients do. Once a doctor like yourself or somebody else sees what we go through, right. it's hard not to realize, hey, there's something here. Right. You know, That's and right. start to second guess things. So I love that you said that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Um I want to talk about treatments a little bit. I know treatments for benzodiazepine dependence are probably very lacking if there if there are any at all. But I want to mention a couple of things because these come up a lot of the time. And one of the ones that we hear quite often, of course, is flumazenil. Um, I don't know if you're, uh, how much you're familiar with it, if that's been something you've read about in literature, it's something you've experienced firsthand. Not a whole lot of information. I've never prescribed it um, for this indication. I've read about it. Um, you know, we, we do, I, 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 my sense is that it works the same way that naltrexone, an opioid receptor blocker, works for pain in that essentially flunazomil blocks the benzodiazepine receptor and in so doing kind of tricks the body into upregulating GABA, our calming neurotransmitter. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't know much about it. I haven't really delved deeply into the literature and I've never prescribed it. Yeah, I, I know little about and I've had many people ask me and want me to do yeah. you know full episode on it. And I said I will, but I'm still looking into the research, trying to right. get more information. I've talked to some who have done um, you know, the patches and I've done some within the States. I've also, you know, some experience where people have done, you know, more of an ultra rapid detox with, uh -huh. you know, like Jordan Peterson did a coma, you know, was put into a coma. Right. You know, that story and the yeah, ultra rapid I, detox. Right. And that one scares the hell out of yeah. me when so I he, hear he, what he went yeah. through. So here's the thing that I can say that the faster the taper or the detox, the more we are stressing our brain and body right? That because any deviation from neutrality or, uh, you know, homeostasis is the definition of stress. The definition of stress is that we deviate from homeostasis. So if we do a, a rapid withdrawal, even if it's assisted by other medications like flumazenil, it's an enormous shock and stress to the body. And I just think, you know, geez, not not good, right? I would right. rather do something that causes less of an acute stress um, and allows the brain to slowly readapt and build new neural circuitry over time, which is why I'm a, I'm a proponent of the slow taper. 
I would agree with you on that. Not that I have the medical backing for that, but I would agree with you on what I've seen because yeah. we do heal. Every sign is just showing that we, yes. we heal. Some of us take several years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people that said they fully healed at 10 years out. Um, I have two more years to get there. So I'm hoping that's one, that I'm going to be one of those people, but You're I'm right. still probably 80, 85% healed. So I'm doing wonderfully compared to where I was. And I'm very positive about yeah. my outlook. And yeah, where I'm that's at. great. But yeah. it took time. And I do, it, I think for me, it's, do I want to take more medication to fix a problem that was created by medication? Right. And I kind of get in that mindset. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but Right. And you're, you know, you're, I think we can have a lot of faith in the neuroplasticity of our brains and our ability to readapt and heal and change these neural circuits over time. One of the other seminal findings in neuroscience in the past hundred years or so is that, um, you know, hippocampal neurogenesis and neurogenesis more widely in the brain that we continue to make new neurons throughout life. So there's enormous, you know, reason for optimism. On the other hand, it can be slow. And the older we are, uh, you know, the longer it takes. So I think patience is, is really necessary here. Yeah, that does make sense, especially in the elderly. And as you probably know as well as anybody that's... Oh, yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I was already doing my podcast. And as I mentioned, I was taking care of my parents before they both passed away. And both of them were put on a benzodiazepine during that time. Now, for my mom, it made sense. She had severe agitation. And I even knew about the drug. And I even said, you know, I think this makes sense at this time. I think it's the best thing. She was, she had um, alcohol-induced encephalopathy and was deteriorating rapidly. Oh, wow. And so she needed something to help the right. agitation and help her keep calm. Well, right. if I know the, the odds are she'll never have to come off it. Right. I'm not too worried. I mean, except for maybe falls and fractures, you know, some of the side effects, right. I'm not too worried. So, but I also realized with most people in the elderly, because of falls and fractures and because of these other complications, it's a huge population of people who are having some problems with these drugs. Oh, yes. If you look at uh, prescribing patterns across the United States, older people are the most likely, people over 65 are the most likely to be prescribed to benzodiazepines and most likely to be kept on it for long duration. Yeah. So the very population that's most vulnerable to the risk factors and side effects of benzos is the same population that's most likely to get a benzodiazepine. So it's, it's a huge problem. If you're talking about a terminal situation where the amount of time that a person has to live is less than six months, so essentially hospice care, then it mm-hmm. really doesn't matter. Um, because the the risks of tolerance, dependence, addiction, um, you know, are irrelevant in the face of the amount of time they have to live. But if we're talking about using benzos longer than that, I, you know, they're, they're really not a good choice. That makes sense. Yeah, I understand that. One thing I wanted to touch on real quick, and then we'll probably close this down here real soon. Um, you had mentioned something I hadn't heard about in an article you wrote called um, Benzodiazepines Are Other Prescription Drug Epidemic. You mentioned clonazolam. I hadn't heard of this one. And this was um, clonopin and alprazolam. Is that right? Right. So it's a designer drug. It's made okay. in illegal laboratories. It's not a legal drug uh, in the United States. It's basically a combination of Xanax and clonopin. Okay. So it has the best and worst of both of those um, drugs. Wow. It has a rapid onset of action um, and then a kind of a middle, middling half-life. 
but it's a very, very potent um, benzodiazepine. So a tiny little bit has a huge impact. And of course, the more potent and the more fast acting any drug, the more likely people are to misuse it and get addicted to it. So it's very scary because it's a sort of the benzo equivalent of fentanyl. And, you know, you can buy it online gotcha. through yeah. illegal online pharmacies. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. You you mentioned you can get it online and have it delivered almost anywhere. Yeah, it's really, really scary what, what's available now to all kinds of people. And that one mil or millionth of a gram is what you measure at the level? Yeah. So it's just like fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent right. than morphine. You know, clonazolam is more, way more potent than either of those individually. Yeah. So it's really a dangerous drug. Um, so closing things out, knowing all, all that we know and the dangers of benzodiazepines, of course, I think you and I and, um, will agree that we, they're still needed for certain things. What do you still believe benzodiazepines are effective for in prescribing practices? Well, they're essential for seizures, right? If someone's having a, a major seizure, they're you know essential to stop the seizure. Um, I think it's okay to use them intermittently uh, for anxiety and sleep. Um, not ideal, but okay. And intermittently might look like a couple times a month. Um, it's okay to use them for specific phobias, like you're getting on an airplane um, and you're afraid of flying. Although I will say that it's still better to use other behavioral interventions or non-addictive psychotropics for all of those indications, um, except for maybe a full-on tonic-clonic seizure. Uh, benzodiazepines are indicated first line for catatonia, which is a psychotic, anxious mental state where people mm. essentially become frozen and can't move. Um, so you know, we use the benzos first line for that. Um, extreme type of psychiatric emergency. So in other words, they're good for emergency situations where they've been shown to work and for non-emergent but urgent situations related to psychiatric or psychological distress. They're not first line, but they can be used as long as they're not dosed uh, daily or frequently. Interesting. And, and a, a week ago, I was just um, had foot surgery. And going in, one of the decisions I knew I'd have to make probably was whether to receive um, midazolam, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a short-acting benzodiazepine. And that's always a question many of us face. Now, Ashton and others have said that type of benzodiazepine on a one-off is not going to be a complication for recovery. But it's hard for us not to second-guess that and think right. it's not. I went in thinking I wouldn't get it. But when I talked to the anesthesiologist, because of the benzo, he wouldn't have to put me under as much from the general anesthesia. Right. Which then would be beneficial on that. And so I decided to go forward and also be kind of a guinea pig so I could report back to the podcast. Yeah, good. How it went. And I've, I've done quite well since then. Okay, but good. Do you, have you seen that? And have, do you have that same um, view on short acting for medical procedures, short acting benzodiazepines? Yeah. So this comes up a lot in clinical care. Somebody who is either tapering or has successfully tapered and is doing well and has some kind of MRI procedure or other medical procedure um, where they you know, might be exposed or will very likely be exposed to a benzo and worrying about that. And in general, I haven't found that to be problematic. Okay. Um, not, not only is it just a one-time exposure, but it's a very different treatment setting, right? You're in the hospital. And when we know, and we know that set and setting matter, right? That the kinds of associations we have and how and when we use our benzo is also part of the problem, right? It, the problem is reaching for the benzo in our own medicine cabinet when we feel anxious. That's very different from 
getting a benzodiazepine administered by an anesthesiologist as you're being rolled into the, the OR. Because a lot of it is the learned associations and learned patterns of behavior around taking it, as well as the chemical impact of the drug itself. That's exactly where I was going to, because just the anxiety of not just the procedure, but even the anxiety of taking a benzo right. can be the trigger that sets you into a wave all by itself. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's close things out. I want to ask you one last question here, and then we will um, say goodbye for now. Um, but that question is, what would you say to patients who come to you, first come to you and are just freaking out, totally upset, realize they're now dependent, have read horror stories, don't know what to do, and, and don't you know how to go about it? I'm not talking about how to taper and the specifics, but just psychologically. You know, what do you say to them? How do you encourage them? How do you help them get through that? Well, the first thing I do is I apologize on behalf of myself and the medical profession for having gotten them into this dire situation. I let them know that they're not alone, that there are, sorry, I'm losing my voice, that there are, you know, uh, you know, thousands, if not millions of people out there struggling with this very same problem. And then I basically try to communicate to them um, hope and uh, that saying that, you know, uh, that it is possible to get off of benzodiazepines in a way that doesn't wreck your whole life or uh, leave you, you know, uh, in shambles. And the way that we do that is slowly with supportive treatment and learning other coping strategies. So that that's kind of how I generally approach it. That sounds good. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And before you entirely lose your voice, let's sign off now. <laughs> I just I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I'm, I'm so glad we finally got to do this. And just for your information and all the work you've done with addiction medicine and with benzodiazepines, um, we're just very grateful. And thank you for all that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your gratitude. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I just want to repeat how grateful I am that Dr. Lemke took the time from her busy schedule to speak with us today, especially when she was losing her voice towards the end of that conversation. I felt so bad for her. Her knowledge, insight, dedication to the issues of addiction and opioids and benzodiazepines. In part, it's why we've come so far. It's people like her who have made a huge difference. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And now, before we close out this episode, please allow me 25 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benson Free Podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering on any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. Our next episode is episode 111. It should be coming out probably a little bit later this month. And um, don't forget to check out the PROTECT study that we mentioned in the introduction. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, keep calm. Taper slowly and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.